Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. If you would take your Bible and join me tonight in the fifth chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible as they contain basically two stories uh, in one, or perhaps one story with two parts. What we've seen in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 is this. In chapter 4, Mark gives us four uh, powerful parables that provide for us instruction concerning the nature of the kingdom of God. And then following that, at the end of chapter 4 and verse 35, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 43, he follows with four stories that give us evidence of the deity of Jesus as he is sovereign over nature, uh, as he is sovereign over the demonic, and as we're going to see tonight, he is also sovereign over disease and even sovereign over Death. Now, in this particular chapter, chapter 5, uh, you notice three things that are very clear as we walk through these particular stories. One, we've already seen. Uh, Jesus is Lord over the demonic. He is Lord over disease. And he's even Lord over death. It's also the case that we see him as the Savior of men as he delivers the demoniac in chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, we see he, that he is the Lord over a woman uh, as he delivers her from a disease that has afflicted her for 12 years. And also we see that he is the Savior's child as well as he raises a little girl back from the dead. So whether you are a man, a woman, or a child, uh, our passage this evening indicates very clearly that Jesus... Jesus loves you and that he desires to be the Lord of your life. And he ministers to all people in various and sundry ways. So basically what we're going to see tonight is Jesus does indeed hear the cries of the distress. That will be verses 21 through 24. Secondly, we will see that Jesus responds to the pain of the disease. That's verses 24 through 34. And then finally, we will see that Jesus has authority over our greatest enemy of all. He has authority over the power of death, verses 35 through 43. So first of all, we see tonight in verses 21 through 24 that Jesus does indeed hear the cries of the distressed. Look at verse 21 with me. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. By the way, we've seen a great crowd many, many times. We've seen Jesus also teaching and ministering by the sea. Verse 22, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And uh, he went with him. 
this text, as I mentioned a moment ago, is two stories in one. It has what we could call a, a sandwich structure uh, because you have the story of Jarius in 21 through 24. You then have the story of the woman who suffers in verses 24 through 34. And then we go back to the story of Jarius and his little girl in verses 35 through 43. Now, why is it that Luke puts the story together in this kind of a way? Well, first of all, that's the way it happened. Uh, Jairus came, was interrupted by this woman, and then he proceeds on to Jairus' house where the little girl lies initially sick, and then, as we see in the text, by the time he gets there, she is also dead. Furthermore, there are a number of themes that Mark wishes to continue to put before us that even carry us back to Jesus stealing the storm in chapter 4 and also healing the demoniac in chapter 5. Two things in particular stand out. Number one, Jesus does care deeply for those who are in trouble. It can be his disciples. Uh, it can be a man who is a leader in the community. It can be a woman who is treated as an outcast. It can even be a little child that can really do nothing to further his agenda. Jesus cares about those who are in trouble. But even more clear than that, he is the omnipotent God. He can speak and the sea becomes calm. He can speak and demons are forced to flee. He can be touched and he brings immediate healing. And he can reach and touch a dead body and bring a little girl back to life. So whether it's nature, whether it's demons, whether it's diseases or even death, all of these things are forced to surrender to his omnipotent authority as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, when we see the idea of Jesus hearing the cries of the distress, two lessons are pertinent for you and for me this evening. Number one, we can come to Jesus with our request. Verse 21 tells us he's crossed again on the other side in a boat. And once more, a great crowd is following him. And I note for you in your notes tonight, the number of times a great crowd is mentioned as following after Jesus. Verse 22, though, something new happens. There came to him one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. He's like an elder. Uh, he is an official who's responsible, for example, for supervising uh, the building itself and also for putting together the services. Uh, he would have been a man of great respect. Uh, he would have been a man who had some standing in the community. And yet, in spite of that, he does something rather remarkable there in verse 22. We saw it earlier back in chapter 5 and verse 6 with the uh, uh, demoniac from the Gerizines. He fell at Jesus' feet. In other words, he humbles himself. Uh, if you like, he humiliates himself. By the way, any parent would do that for their child. I don't care who you think you are. I don't, think, I don't care how proud you are. Uh, if you think somebody has the ability to keep your little boy or little girl from dying, I dare say you would do anything. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus, and the text says in verse 23, he implored him earnestly. It would not be stretching the word to say he begged on his knees, face on the ground. He begged that Jesus would come, and as it says there in the text, make her well that she may live. Now, again, keep in mind, uh, the religious establishment is growing in its opposition to Jesus. 
Uh, the popular people may like him, but the religious establishment does not. This man is a part of the religious establishment, but once more, if he has to choose between the religious establishment and his little girl, guess who loses? And so he comes to the one person he is convinced can do something about his dire situation. He bucks the trends of the day, and he comes to Jesus because he believes only Jesus has the power and the ability to save his little girl. By the way, we're informed from Luke chapter 8 and verse 42 that she was the only child, the only daughter of this man. And so we see that we can come to Jesus with our request. Secondly, though, we must also come to Jesus in faith. Again, it says there in verse 23, he implored him, saying, my little girl is at the point of death. You come, you lay hands on her, and she may be made well, and she may live. In other words, Jairus did believe that Jesus could heal his little girl. He was confident that he could do for him what nobody else could do. And so he comes to Christ, he humbles himself, and with a request that is pretty simple, pretty straightforward, with urgency and dependency, he pleads with Jesus to come and heal his little girl. By the way, there's a good model there for how you and I should approach the Lord as well. Uh, we should come humbly. We should know that we're welcome to come, and we should plead with Him to do for us what really nobody else can do. It's amazing how often... We turn initially to the wrong place. And we then only turn to Jesus sort of as a, a last resort when actually he should not be our last choice. He should be our first choice. And so Jairus provides a wonderful model for us to come to him, to come exclusively to him, and come to him in faith. Because Jesus does hear the cries of those who are distressed. But now number two. Jesus also responds to the pain of the diseased. Uh, what happens in verse 24 all the way through verse 43 really cannot be fully appreciated apart from both the urgency of the two situations and secondly, the Hebrew laws concerning ceremonial uncleanness. Now, just for a moment, and you can follow with me if you want, take your Bible and go back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus and chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15, and let me read for you, and you can follow along, verse 25 through verse 30. By the way, keep this in mind, in the first century, most of the people were illiterate. But in the first century, most of the people had massive portions of the Bible memorized. It is that way today around the world. Just uh, last May when, when Charlotte and I and some others were in the southern Sudan, uh, I was made aware of the fact that many of the people that were at the conference, over 1,600, number one, did not have a Bible. And number two, if they had, it wouldn't have mattered because they couldn't read. And so I was a bit discouraged by that, but one of the pastors said, Oh, don't worry. Uh, they will remember very well what you say. They will recall very well what you teach. They are very good at remembering what they hear. Well, the same thing was true with those in the first century. So many of them would have immediately recalled in what happens in the following part of our story, uh, these verses, Leviticus 15:25. if a woman has a discharge of blood for her many days, uh, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity. All the days of the discharge 
she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening." Well, go with me over just a few pages to Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus chapter 22, and look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they may abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, if any one of you, uh, if any one of all your offsprings throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, well, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who have a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead, or a man who has an emission, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. And then one more time, go over to Numbers chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Numbers chapter 5, 1 through 4, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out, out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so. And they put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. Now, having taken those verses into account, watch with me as I go back now and begin to read in Mark chapter 5 and verse 24. So Jesus went with him, that is, he went with Jairus. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Well, we know what condition she's in now in terms of ceremonial uncleanness, don't we? Uh, she had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but actually grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Oh, my goodness. She said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately... The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him immediately, turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and, here it is again, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. 
go in peace and be healed of your disease. What happens here is really remarkable because Jesus has a very urgent situation with a little girl who's on the verge of death. And yet we see in this text that Jesus is not too busy to stop and to help someone else who is hurting. He is particularly sensitive to those who are determined, those who are humble, those who are hopeful. He honors the patience and persistence of this remarkable lady. Now, again, we learned two things about how we can come to Jesus from this wonderful lady. Number one, we can approach Jesus in our suffering. Verse 24 again refers to a large crowd. So Bedlam continues to reign as Jesus is moving from where he was now toward the house of Jairus. But while he is on his way to help Jairus, something suddenly occurs. Verse 25 tells us a woman appears and there are six things that are said about this woman in verse 24. And verse 26, I'll note them quickly. Number one, she has a discharge of blood, which tells us she is ceremonial unclean. She is forbidden access to the temple. And actually, she should not have been there in the crowd. Secondly, she has been sick for 12 long years. Now, the odds are, the text doesn't say this, but the odds are as a result of that, she is unmarried or if she is married, She has not been able to have relations with her husband for at least 12 years. Most likely, she is unmarried. Most likely, she is childless. So add to her uncleanness the stigma of being both unmarried and with no children. Thirdly, she has suffered much from many physicians. Now, you cannot help but this comical note. In Luke chapter 8, verse 43, Dr. Luke says it this way. She had seen many physicians, and they had done all that they could, and they still could not heal her. Mark doesn't put it that way. Mark says there in our text that she had suffered under many physicians, and they had taken all the money she had. And she was not only not better... My goodness, the cure made her even worse. And so she suffered from many positions. She has spent all that she had. She is not better. She actually grew worse. In other words, she suffered both from the diseases and the cures. And now her medical options are at an end. There's no place else to go, no place else to turn except to Jesus. And so verse 27, it says, she heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. Now, we can't be sure what she thought of Jesus in terms of her full understanding. Some people think that she may have had a a fairly orthodox view of him and that he was a prophet uh, from the history of Israel that had this ability. Others think that she may have had some type of pagan superstition and she thought he was some type of magic man that she, if she could just touch him, he could bring healing to her body. Bottom line is this, her theology, we don't know. Her theology may not have been great, but her faith was. And I want to tell you something. God, and I taught theology for 15 years. I've written a book on theology. God doesn't honor necessarily perfect theology, but he does honor faith. If you bring as much of you as you understand to as much of Jesus as you understand, he will not disappoint you. And so she may not have it all jot and tittled down when it comes to the categories of theology, but she knows here is a man who can do something about my problem. And so she comes to him in her suffering. But secondly, like Jairus, 
she also approaches him in faith. Hundreds are thronging about him. And yet only one person, a woman, connects with him in faith. Verse 28, if I touch even his garment, I will be made whole. Spiritually and certainly physically desperate. She really does the unthinkable. She really does the incredible. And she does the unacceptable. She touches him. And doing so in faith, look what happens, verse 29. There's that favorite marking word. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately she is healed and she knew it. She, she felt it. And can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the excitement that for the first time in 12 long years, she is made whole? She's healthy. She's physically restored. The amazing grace of God through Christ has healed her body just like it heals our souls when we come to Him in faith. Now, verse 30 begins to open up some really interesting uh, questions because there it says, Jesus, perceiving Himself that, now here's the key phrase, that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Now, here's the question. Jesus receives a loss of power. Why? By the way, this is the first time that that very interesting Greek word, dunamis, from which we get our word dynamic, dynamite appears, uh, power has gone out from him. Why? Why is it that Jesus loses power? Well, I think the answer is what you have here is anticipatory of what happens at the cross. He loses power to give you his strength. He loses so you can gain. In fact, go back and read once more the suffering servant uh, passage of Isaiah 53. And again, he takes on his body our sin, our sorrows, our suffering, our diseases, our pains. And taking that into himself in response, he gives us his healing, his wholeness, his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy. And so Jesus loses power that she might gain power and gain strength. And so Jesus then begins to ask the question, who touched my garments? Well, the disciples, as is often the case, are a little bit indignant here. And they say, well, goodness gracious, Jesus, uh, you see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And again, the point is this. Lots of people, no doubt, were touching Jesus, but only one person connected with him. And I've said this many times in our study, I'd never seen it before, but the crowds are never pictured positively in Mark's gospel. Crowds do not come to Jesus in faith. Individuals do. Crowds come like a herd. They get caught up in the, in the excitement of the moment, but they don't stay. They don't last. They are following him now because they want to see another miracle at Jairus' house. They may be touching him, but they're not connecting with him. She touches and she connects. And so what does the text say in verse 33? The woman, 
knowing what had happened to her, she's been exposed now, she's been found out, she's been called out, came, number one, in fear, trembling, and number two, she fell down before him and she told him the whole truth. This is how we know that she's been sick for 12 years. This is how we know that she came desperate, came hoping. And what does Jesus say in verse 34? Daughter, which tells us right there she has been received. Your faith has made you well. Go in shalom. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I believe, in fact, I had someone ask me recently, well, do you think she was healed only physically? Oh, no. That he called her daughter was a tender way of saying, you now are part of my kingdom. So, yes, she was healed physically, which was her immediate need. But she was also healed spiritually, which was her greatest need. And again, we see very clearly that Jesus responds to the pain of the disease. He hears the cries of the distress. But now, number three, Jesus also has authority over the power of death. We now return back to Jairus. You know, it's really kind of fun since we know how the story ends to put yourself in his position for a moment and you ask, well, I wonder how Jairus felt right now. I wonder what was going on on the inside in terms of his emotional uh, makeup. I suspect that he was about to lose it. We would say today he was on the verge of freaking out. I mean, hold on. Can we not get this in perspective? Uh, look, sweetheart. I know you've been sick for 12 years. You've been sick for 12 years. He can come back in 30 minutes and take care of your situation. I've got a little girl that's on the verge of death. I mean, let's do a little a medical triage here. Uh, if we show up in the medical room, little girl about to die, woman been bleeding for 12 years, but is going to not die, this is a no-brainer. So you would have thought that Jesus would have made a quick trip over to Jairus' house, Heal the little girl and then come back. But Jesus doesn't work on our timetable, does he? Uh, he's not dictated to by you or by me. And actually, because he does it the way he does it, both the woman and Jairus and their family get more than they were asking for from the great physician. So the text tells us that Jesus now, there in verse 35, is speaking... And while he is still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jairus must have been speechless. I can also imagine that he was probably ticked off. I can almost hear him in his mind saying, Jesus, I mean, good night. I wasn't like Nicodemus. I didn't come like a coward at night. I came in broad daylight. I, I exposed myself to the scorn of, of my peers, of my colleagues. And I came in the middle of the day. I put my knees and face in the dirt. I begged you that you would come. I didn't demand anything. And look at what it got me. A dead little girl. You know, there are some very interesting comparisons between Jairus, who, by the way, is the only person named in this text. Both the woman and the little girl go unnamed. But there's some very interesting parallels here. He knew, she knew, only Jesus could help them. He knew, she knew, they were unworthy. He knew, she 
fell down. He, she believed Jesus could heal, and she got what she wanted. But for Jairus, things not only were bad, they went to absolutely the worst possible situation still. In spite of what Jairus has just been told and where things are now, two things again we learn from, or three actually, from this particular final paragraph. Number one, we can believe in Jesus in spite of the circumstances. They've been interrupted with the bad news. She's dead. So hope is gone. Hope is lost. You might as well go on back to the house by yourself. Jesus can no longer do anything for you. But verse 36, overhearing what they said, she's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. That statement, do not fear, is an imperative. It's a word of command. It's in the present tense. Don't you enter into a state of fearing. Stop fearing, actually, with the present imperative, with the negative. And secondly, only believe another present imperative. It could then be translated, stop fearing, keep believing. Stop fearing, keep believing. In other words, despite all appearances like disciples in the storm, I'm not distracted uh, I'm not um, disinterested in your situation. I work in my time, not yours. I work in my time, not what others. I will not be hurried. I will not be dictated to. Just believe and watch what I do. And yes, we can believe in Jesus in spite of the circumstances. But secondly, we can believe in Jesus regardless of the skeptics. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. By the way, this is the first time they are noted as the inner circle. And it's the first time he separates them out from the other twelve. Verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, which is a massive understatement in the English text. He saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Uh, in the first century, they had professional mourners. Uh, it was just considered the thing to do. You would pay for them, and the more money you had, the bigger the crowd. And so evidently, uh, before Jairus gets back, his wife has already called for them, has already paid them, and given his standing in the community, it must have been quite a scene. There wouldn't have been two or three, but there would have been dozens of people who would be yelling and wailing and mourning, and that was just part of the custom of the day. And so they paid them to do this. They're there. No doubt there's a tremendous scene. And when he had entered, verse 39, Jesus said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. She's sleeping. Now, some have tried to read the text as if to say, well, Jesus knew better than they that she really had not died, that she was just asleep. She was sort of comatose. But no, uh, they knew a dead girl when they saw a dead girl. The fact of the matter is, many times in the Bible, sleeping is used as a metaphor for the death of one who belongs to God. It's never used of the death of an unbeliever, not one time. But it's used of the death of those who die in the Lord, and here it's applied, and I think appropriately so, to a little girl. And so Jesus says she's not dead, she's sleeping. Well, verse 40, uh, they laughed at him. In other words, we've checked her pulse. 
We've checked her breath. She's dead. She, she's cold by now. We know that she is dead. So what does Jesus do to their ridicule and scorn? I love verse 40. They laughed at him, but he put them out of the house and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Now, next week, we're going to see very interestingly that this picture of Jesus that many of us have, you know, the hippie Jesus with a dress and long hair and a beard, that is about as unbiblical. You said, where did they get those pictures? A bunch of Italians wrote those kind of things or painted those kind of things back in the 16th and 17th centuries. But he doesn't look like that. We're going to see next week, as you already know, he's a carpenter. Uh, he was no sissy girl. He was a man's man. Uh, and I suspect that he, if he needed to, used a little force to get these cynics and these skeptics out of the house. So they laugh, and he kicks them out. He gives them the boot, and evidently they went. And it says there in the text that he took the child's father, and he took the child's mother and those with him, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the child was. Now, what's our application here very quickly? Hardcore, hardcore realists and skeptics are always going to be with us. They'll always mock our faith in a crucified Jew, and they'll ridicule our trust in a God that we cannot see. Uh, they will laugh at you and me for our love for a Savior who has cleansed us from our defilement from sin and who gave us spiritual life by his atoning work on the cross. In spite of the fact that we'll be opposed, in spite of the fact that people will mock us, ridicule us, make fun of us, what does the text tell us to do? Just believe. Just believe. Now, you don't want me to stop there because just believe means nothing. That's a nonsensical statement. Belief, faith, trust must always have an object. In other words, that common phrase that we have, keep the faith, is sheer nonsense. Keep the faith in what? Keep the faith in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Why? Because number three, we can believe in Jesus because he can be trusted. They moved into the room, mom and dad, the, the inner circle of the three. And just as Jesus has taken uncleanness and made it clean with a woman who bled for 12 years, he now once more takes on the uncleanness of death and in response gives life. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Literally in the Greek text, it is little lamb, arise. Little lamb, arise. In other words, a figure of speech in the first century like what we would say today, uh, honey, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And so that's what Jesus said. He took her by the hand. He touched a dead body that makes him unclean. Well, no, because when he touches dead bodies, they no longer stay dead. They become alive. And so it's not unclean anymore. So he touches the little girl. Sweetheart, it's time for you to get up. In verse 42, immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. Isn't that interesting? The same number of years that this lady has been bleeding has been the number of years that this little girl has been on the earth. The text says that she began walking. It's a word that really means she kept walking around in a circle. So she's 
moving around now. She's quite active. And then verse uh, continues, says they were immediately overcome with amazement. I think that's, again, a massive understatement. You can imagine the response of mama and daddy, their little girl brought back from the dead. And so the text concludes with Jesus in verse 43, strictly charging them that no one should know this. And then he told them to give her something to eat. Isn't it just like our Lord to be very practical? Now, on the front end, telling them to keep quiet, probably again, trying to keep down the messianic fervor that would no doubt explode, hearing that he has now raised someone from the dead. It's not time for all that to happen. But secondly, just in a very practical way, he says, she needs something to eat. So give the little lady something to eat. And so think about the parallels. Like her sister in verses 30, 24 through 34, her gender, her namelessness, her uncleanness, and her impossible condition did not stop her from experiencing the healing touch of the great physician. So very quickly, what are some lessons that we can learn in our five big questions? Question number one, what does this text teach me about God? Well, at least two things. One, God honors the faith of all who come to him through Jesus. Social status, gender, or any other distinction of this sort matters not one whit to him. Secondly, Jesus cares for the demon-possessed, the man of distinction, the outcast woman, and the little girl who is powerless. In other words, God truly loves the world of people without distinction. Number two, what does this text teach me about sinful humanity? Well, again, two key lessons. First, disease and death are realities we must face in our fallen and sinful world. Please don't forget, Jesus did raise the little girl from the dead, but she eventually died. Oh, her death was delayed. But she did eventually die, and that is the reality, tragically, in a fallen, sinful world. In a world like ours, tsunamis happen in places like Japan. And tens of thousands of people are snatched immediately from this life into the next life, and tragically, many of them not prepared. Most of them not prepared. Secondly, ours is a world filled with pain and sorrow, which desperately needs the touch and grace of God mediated through Jesus, and now by extension through the body of Christ, His church, His people. Question number three, what does this text teach me about Jesus Christ? First of all, He cares for the hurting. Secondly, He does His work on His timetable, not ours. Thirdly, when Jesus touches the unclean, they become clean as he takes on their uncleanness in himself. Fourthly, Jesus gives healing and life to those who trust him as he takes on our diseases and dies our death, Isaiah 53. In other words, he willingly loses, gives up power for those who have no power. All of this is a foreshadowing of what happens at Calvary. Number four, what does God want me to know? Well, at least three things. First, we can come to Jesus with our request no matter who we are or no matter what we have done. Secondly, we must come to Jesus in faith, believing and not fearing. And thirdly, God does honor imperfect faith from a sincere heart when the object of that faith is Jesus. Then finally, what does God want me to do? Well, two overarching lessons. Number one. God wants you and me to come to him with any and every request. 
There's no place in the Bible where God says you can't bring that request to me, not one. So whether it is physical or spiritual, personal or corporate, we can come to him with any and every request. And then finally, God wants you to trust him regardless of the circumstances or the situation. Why? Because he can be trusted to heal our diseases. He can be trusted to conquer the great enemy called death. How do we know? We look to a cross and we look to an empty tomb. As I think about all of this, that wonderful song by Wilbur Chapman pops into my mind. Hallelujah. What a Savior, Jesus. What a friend for sinners. And so I love this story. Because whether you're a man, a woman, or a little girl, he cares, he loves, and he can meet your needs no matter where you are, no matter what you've done. He is that kind of glorious, wonderful Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is the great physician. Thank you that he's not too busy for any one of us, even a no-named woman who was an outcast, who felt like she had nothing to give and had nothing to receive, and yet in magnificent faith, she came to the one that she believed could heal her, and she did not leave disappointed. And Lord, I've often said in, in all of my life, I have been disappointed by many people. I've disappointed myself many times. But not once in 54 years on this planet have I ever been disappointed with Jesus. Not one time. So thank you for being such a faithful friend. Thank you for being such a great physician. And thank you for being such a wonderful, marvelous Savior. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus, what a friend. We pray this in your strong and mighty name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.